Getting into the meat of football season here, folks. I think we've got a cold open. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is October 15th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Neil. How's it going? Uh, I'm good. How are you? Good. We both got screwed over by uh, Pittsburgh Steelers wide receivers <laughs> this week, and uh, I'm a little salty about it. What was our uh, cumulative margin of defeat together? <laughs> One point? Yeah. <laughs> Less At than most? two points, I think. Yeah. yeah. It was real bad. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hey. How are you? I'm good. You won your fantasy matchup this week, correct? I did. I did. And the Jets won. Yeah. I was and just the channeling, Jets won. I was channeling the... The energy from the Jets. We're like one breathing organism together. My fantasy team and the Jets. Super weird. How, how is the spleen of this organism? <laughs> spleen is It's strong. good, right? It's strong. Look, I went from Jets as the worst team in the history of the NFL to I think the Jets are going to make the playoffs, guys. I think it's going to happen. Jets have Monday Night Football against the Patriots. The line is interestingly only like 10. So that's like very low for a Patriots line. And then look at this schedule open up. Look at this. Look at the traffic clear. It's like when you get past an accident on the highway. (laughs) Jaguars, Dolphins, Giants, Redskins, Raiders, Bengals, Dolphins. Two Dolphins in that run. That is a soft schedule, yes. It's always good to (laughs) backload your Dolphin games. They beat the Patriots, which is a big if. It's 10 and 4 right there. It's a lock. I, I mean, why wouldn't you just say they're going to lose to the Patriots and 9 and 5 seems fine too? Like, yeah, you got to have a backup plan <laughs> nope. if you do lose to the all. Patriots. We okay. want it all. For what it's worth, our model uh, has them going 7 and 9 and gives them a 13% chance of making the playoffs. Hey, so they're saying there's a chance. Yeah, 7 and 9. That's not bad. That's, you not know, it looks bad. Adjusted, not that's really terrible. good. Yeah, just. <laughs> My fantasy win was almost single-handedly done by our mutual friend Stefan Diggs. No, you were, and you were ready. What was that about? Where did where did that come from? I know. See, that's the thing. I told you he wasn't going to get traded, and uh, then he. You were right about that. Yeah. Yeah, great. I wasn't also wrong to ask you about that. I mean, that was like people were talking about that all over the place on Twitter. Yeah, that's just due diligence, Jeff. I think. Yeah, I was just doing my homework on my team. The uh, trade talk probably fueled his uh, really good game and being targeted so many times on Sunday. So, hey, squeaky wheel. Sarah, just a Viking question for you. Oh, good. Where do you stand on Kirk Cousins? I cannot tell if he's a good quarterback or not because sometimes he looks great. Jeff, it's as if you don't know me at all. (laughs) I think Kirk Cousins is hugely overrated. I know you, you say that, and the team is not obviously like built to be a pass first team. But you have to admit, some of these throws, sometimes he looks great. He looks like an elite NFL quarterback. You have to admit that. And that is the problem because he should always play like that or at least most of the time play like that. And then he's in these red zone situations and inexplicably throws into triple coverage in the end zone. I mean, it, he makes bad decisions 
a lot of the time when he is under pressure and in games that are high leverage situations and it is maddening. You, you can't take the good cousins without the bad cousins. I think that's the big problem with cousins. I've heard that proverb, yes. <laughs> Sarah, would you rather have Kirk Cousins or Jared Goff? Ooh, good question. I mean, there are other quarterbacks out there, right? <laughs> but he's your fantasy quarterback, so it's somewhat relevant. You're Goff and running. Yeah, my Or Goff and are... sucking <laughs> this week. Yeah, that was good. Thanks. <laughs> I would definitely take Cousins over Goff, for the record. I mean, sure, yes. I would take Cousins. That's not really the issue, though. The issue is, can the Vikings get over their like massive failures and ever actually win a Super Bowl. And I don't probably not with Cousins, I don't think. Is that not fair? Do you see Cousins as a Super Bowl winning quarterback? Again, the, just the way that team is run, it, it's one of the few teams that seems to want to play this old school, you know, defense, brutal running game, get a lead and just milk the clock and, and run the other team into the ground. And like, you know, teams have been very successful with that approach at least have gone to super bowls if that's working that is an effective brand of football so if that's the type of team they are then they will be less dependent on on their quarterback play what people have been saying is that if you take away the running game you're going to beat the vikings and so cousins has to overcome that and this weekend he did against the eagles they looked great i was i did not think they were going to win that game and they did and that was fun but um, you and Zach Brown together. Yes, I know. On we that island. Know, poor Zach Brown. I actually kind of feel bad that he got released. Anyway, on today's show, we will discuss reported changes to the baseballs used in the NMLB playoffs. We'll be joined by Lindsay Darcangelo of The Athletic to reflect on the WNBA season and to look ahead to upcoming contract negotiations. And we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. After a season of unprecedented home runs, the MLB postseason is looking a bit different. Last week, former 538 writer Rob Arthur wrote that he had found that air resistance to the baseball is completely different in the postseason than it had been during the regular season. And over the weekend, St. Louis Cardinals manager Mike Schilt said that his team's analytics department found that the ball was traveling an average of 4.5 feet less during the playoffs. What is going on here? Neil, let's start with you. Can you explain what the differences we're seeing on the field and if that could be explained by a change in the ball's makeup? Well, I think the big thing that we're seeing on the field is a bunch of balls that, given what we've seen during the record-breaking home run season that we talked about at length when we were talking about the Twins, balls that off the bat and even by the numbers, given the, the exit velocity and the angle that they were launched at, seemed like they would have been home runs during the regular season are just like turning into harmless fly ball outs at the uh, at the warning track and this has happened with Aaron Judge and it's happened with uh you know guys on Houston just every team that you can think of almost has had Marcelo Zuna has had ones that he that he crushed and and weren't out of the park so it seems to be affecting a wide range of teams and uh, you mentioned the Rob Arthur uh research he found he you can actually look at basically the amount of air resistance implied by the MLB's own tracking mechanisms based on the spin rate and the the distance that it travels through the air you can figure out basically how much wind resistance the ball is facing and it, it seems very coincidental uh based on his research that 
if you plot out every day of the season what that wind resistance number was, it's a pretty flat line and it's, you know, relatively low. And then you get to the postseason or maybe a little bit before the playoffs start and it just spikes upward and it's been way higher. Uh, and his research has found that the odds of this happening just based on like a new batch of balls, which is always the, the explanation that MLB kind of puts out there are very low. It's a, re- a remote chance that this suddenly, you know, at this exact moment, we would suddenly see the, the ball become much less aerodynamic. And that has opened up the door for all of these conspiracy theorists to talk about whether they deliberately change the ball for the playoffs. And people have asked, well, it's October, it's colder, that changes. But his... And better pitchers. That's sure. another thing I've seen floated out there. But the the research on the drag, it, it like temperature is accounted for in that in Rob's research so it's not just because it's colder in October that you know that would be the easy the easy answer yeah it would be yeah and and similarly you know I I think the quality of the pitching is kind of implicitly accounted for as well because unless great pitchers have some ability to give up less distance on fly balls than you would expect based on exit velocity and launch angle it's being like if you give up the 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 type of contact you're giving up is being accounted for in this right. research. Also, the quality of the pitching is not uh, necessarily uniformly up during the postseason. <laughs> <clears throat> Minnesota Twins, <clears throat> Jeff, do we think that MLB could have purposefully deadened the ball, or do we believe their statement that? All the balls are made in batches, and there's no difference between the regular season and the postseason. Well, I mean, all the balls are made in batches. That part's true. That means I, I sort of think both can be true. For instance, it seems like what they're saying in in their statement is that they just take a bunch of the balls from the regular season batches and slap the postseason logo on it. Now, they could theoretically, I'm sure they have leftover 2018 balls lying around somewhere, grab a bunch of those, slap the 2019 postseason logo on it, and and use those. There there are ways around it, like regardless of their production schedule from Costa Rica. They're obviously not telling us everything. I think that's the biggest thing fueling all the suspicion is that they're not upfront about it. They don't totally share their data. They don't tell us everything they know. They're they're always kind of, you know, beating around the bush and giving these sort of cryptic statements where they're not being completely upfront about everything. And I think that's not helping the matter. If they wanted to, like, just be an open book, share everything, show exactly where the balls come from, share all their data, then, you know, we wouldn't be having this debate. And people have pointed out that basically the alternative explanation, which is that MLB has no control over this product that's central to the game itself is almost is is just as bad <laughs> you know it's it, either they they are controlling it and for reasons that were not announced or explained or you know whatever they changed the ball right before the postseason and completely altered the uh the thing that got certain teams to the playoffs or they just have no ability to regulate something as important as the ball itself yeah, Both of those things good. are scandals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But if it was totally random, then it wouldn't be these specific turning points where we see the change, like this postseason or when they, when Rob and Ben first detected 
you know, the juice ball evidence, which right after an all-star break a couple seasons ago. So there are these like defining moments where, you know, if it was completely random, it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't see these kind of like sharp trends. I mean, that being said, the, the math that, that Rob is using is not perfect. He's coming to conclusions with the best data he has available and he doesn't have all the data available. There are definitely probably other factors at play. I mean, I, the twins aside, the pitching is, I mean, we're seeing a lot of Garrett Cole. We're seeing a lot of Verlander, um, a lot of Strasburg and, uh, and Scherzer. I mean, these are like great pitchers. I mean, we're not seeing whoever those guys, the Marlins were in, you know, White Sox were th- and Tigers were throwing out. So there are factors if you look at the entire like scope of the pitchers and all the, the, the you know, the high leverage relievers. So, I mean, the pitching, without a doubt, is better. And it, it was freezing in Target Field. Why didn't you guys build a dome? Okay, it was freezing in Target Field in April, too, though. That actually, like, doesn't really have anything to do with that. <laughs> also, have you been to Target Field? It's beautiful without a roof. I know. I'm yes. actually, I actually so, sort of surprised myself by saying that. I love that you guys didn't build a dome. No more domes. <laughs> Forget the domes. And we should also point out that the evidence for this like dejuicing of the ball is not entirely uniform. Uh, so, you know, despite what the Cardinals said about their own analytics department's findings, the public data says that the average fly ball distance this October is actually up compared with the regular season. And uh, the, the average value of fly balls is up too. If you look at baseball savant. So it's not a hundred percent all pointing in the direction of this conspiracy. But at the same time, the, the research Rob has done on the air resistance of the ball is probably the purest distillation of, uh, you know, trying to get at this effect of, you know, why there have been so many home runs and why there are fewer home runs um, than, than you would expect in the playoffs. The, the other things like average fly ball distance and things like that can be influenced by other factors uh, in a way that the that are being accounted for in the air resistance research. Let's talk a little bit about what the league even should be able to do. Does the league have the right to change the ball? Like what could be their motivation, Jeff, if they are intentionally making changes to the ball? I mean, I think the they have the right to do it, of course, but whether they should do it is a totally different question. I think the answer to that is no. Because it's the old Ian Malcolm dilemma. The problem is <laughs> once you start, then you're kind of always, you know, playing catch up. So like, uh, let let's do something in the ball to increase homers. Oh wait, homers have gone too far. Let's change it. Wait, now they dropped again. Let's change. Like you're just going to be on this en- endless back and forth where once you've started, sort of messing around with the ball then you're you know you're getting too many home runs you're getting too few home runs and they probably should have just kept it the same regardless because they'd avoid this entire conversation which i'm sure they're not happy about it's not that different to me than like messing around in little ways with different rules like you know are they going to the pitch clock or the mound changing the mound um that kind of stuff where i feel always like they should just leave things alone and not try to artificially enforce some solution to a problem that you know might not be a problem in a year or two but also maybe don't do it uh between the regular season and the postseason (laughs) i could kind of though understand uh if it was intentional which we don't know again um the idea that okay the regular season it's a long grind it's six months the home runs 
you know, some people have been saying that home that there are too many home runs, like our uh, boss Nate Silver did in a uh, get off my field segment uh, earlier in Hot Takedown. But I think for the most part, people enjoy them. They're still exciting, mm-hmm. and they have certainly allowed scoring to happen in in ways that if you took them away, it would just take the runs away. Period. It's not like suddenly with no time to prepare and no home runs, teams would start playing like the nineteen eighty three Royals or something like that, uh, or the two thousand fifteen Royals for that matter. <laughs> so I think there's a there could be an argument that for the sake of fan excitement and fun during the regular season, you let there be a lot of home runs and records fall. And you know who who aside from a few cranky voices in the media says no, but then you don't want in the postseason games that that really truly matter to be determined by lazy fly balls that carry over the fence and and have real effect on team seasons. I'm not. De- I'm playing devil's advocate right, right, clearly right. here for. The motivation. I'm giving Neil side eye right now. (laughs) Yeah, but I'm just saying that you know the idea that the postseason should be dictated by fundamentals and contact hitting, and you know not just swinging for the fences and hope that a few fly balls drift over the fence. I think this, like the steroids controversy, is that this wouldn't be as big of a deal if baseball wasn't so obsessed with its own records and its own history. It's it's really the only sport where that applies. You know, like everyone knows that offense in football is way, way, way up. And you can't really compare Philip Rivers to Joe Namath or Roger Staubach because the game has changed so much. You know, hockey knows that. Right. And nobody cares. Nobody cares. That's the point. Nobody cares in the NHL that in the 80s they were scoring, you know, seven goals a game because the goalies basically I mean, weren't wearing pads and, and there was no rule. I'd like that to come back, but. Sure. But, but <laughs> the point is, is that we don't obsess over like, you know, people getting enraged when bonds breaks. Um, Hank Aaron's records and these kind of things because we're so, you know, take the records and the Hall of Fame and all this history so seriously and it has to be the same playing field for a hundred years and all that kind of thing. It's the only sport where that happens and the only sport that has these kind of issues come up um, in terms of like the scope of, of you know, results and, and how that compares to its own history. If MLB was like, okay, these home run records during the season, that was crazy. We don't want that. In the postseason, we want it more like it had been. So we're going to change the ball now. If that's true and they're worried about, like, the records have already been set. So that is out the window. Then they should have changed the ball at the All-Star break if they were worried about that. But my whole thing is, if a team is built in one way. and (coughs) Twins. And they win. And they win a certain amount of games, say 101, maybe. Just to pick a random number. Just to pick a number. And that's how they're built. And that's what gets them to the playoffs. Changing a fundamental part of the game is ridiculous. That's nonsense. But didn't they basically hit the same number of home runs in that series as the Yankees did? And and the Yankees only finished one home run behind them during the regular season. Mm -hmm. So it's not... It, it it is not open and shut that that was what cost the Twins the sure. division series. Sure, just to have that idea off at the pass. They aren't switching out the balls between innings. We agree on that. Uh, we don't know that actually. <laughs> I would not put that past that. the Yankees. <laughs> we do not. When the Yankees are batting, let's use the the regular season ball. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I I acknowledge the fact that the Yankees hit. Five home runs during that disaster of a playoff series and the Twins hit four. Not that different. 
But I will say, like, the situations that those happen, like, every, like you can't just – the whole game would have been different. The sure. entire series would have been different. Cody Stashek would not have been pitching probably had, you know – Cody Stashek should never be pitching, but <laughs> – well, That's probably true. Um, but, I mean, the whole the whole thing is different when you change something. I mean, there were – you know, you mentioned players who had – you know, balls that looked like they were gone but weren't. I would add Nelson Cruz to that list. Yeah, and there no, were, I mean, absolutely. there were a ton of that in in that first series, and I think you know there are all kinds of things that were obviously play, and I don't think that's the only reason that the Twins lost that series and were swept out of the playoffs. But I do think that it is total crap to change something between the regular season and the postseason. The oh, postseason completely. should be played in the if you're going to have playoffs. And think that that matters and that that is, you know, what you're leading to all season, then you have to keep the same environment. Other, otherwise, it's just it's not fair. At yeah. All. And it's bizarre because this year people pointed out that all of the teams that hit all of these home runs were actually like the best teams right. uh, during the regular season. So it's not like you have a group of teams that have chosen to play small ball that you know, suddenly see that being rewarded, you know, once they get into the postseason, nobody was playing small ball. It's it's almost like rewarding a style of play that didn't actually even exist. Right. It, it's funny, too, because that we had that postseason two, two years ago where there was that insane Dodgers-Astros World Series and that uh, Astros-Yankees ALCS where there were so many it felt like every team was like hitting a home run every other at bat I don't think people were really complaining about that product on the field I mean that was like an exciting postseason I mean I think it was a little wild I mean I think the degree to which the ball was juiced and how many homers were being hit that season like to the forefront and people really started noticing it in terms of just entertaining MLB postseason I I don't remember a lot of people complaining about that I remember being actually one of the better postseasons yeah I mean I personally I like both. I like a lot of home runs. I I still dig the long ball. Um, But I also like pitching and defense. Like, I like baseball. I like all of the things that can happen in baseball. I just want to know, like, that everyone is playing on a level playing field. I don't want MLB to try to push baseball in one direction or another. Just leave it alone. Don't try to manipulate it. You're going to end up in all of these weird situations or unintended consequences of that. Just just leave it alone, guys. Yeah, and often when teams, I mean, this isn't the first time someone's tried to tinker with you know, the object of the game. The NBA famously had that disastrous new material ball that they rolled out. I think it was 2005 or 2006 that uh, was just widely panned and they had to go back to the previous ball because the players felt like it was grippier and it just, you know, their whole lives they had been playing with one type of ball and then it, that, it was being completely thrown off their feel for things. Uh, I remember hockey when they um, put the Fox Tracks chip in the puck. People like uh, Wayne Gretzky were saying, like, oh, I could feel the difference of, you know, a such and such fraction of an ounce or something in the in the puck. And so, you know, I think in the past, whenever leagues changed it, they thought they were going to a better option or they were trying to introduce new technology. But I can't remember a case where they changed it to kind of 
influence the style of play. There have been a lot of rules trying to guide people toward styles of play, like the NFL in 1977 put in, you know, much stricter rules on defensive backs and and made it a lot easier to pass block, and that was the seeds planted for, you know, the NFL's passing revolution. But something feels different between rule changes about player behavior and something physically changing about the the object that is at the center of the game. The difference is, I think, that they weren't trans... It, you know, again, this is still allegedly, because we don't know for sure what's going on, but the difference is they weren't transparent about it, which was the case with all those other examples. The NBA didn't, like, sneak a new ball in that nobody knew about. It was known. That would have been really funny. Right, like, what is this? This feels weird. You're exactly right, Jeff. I actually wonder, you know, with the NBA, that's, like, an interesting thought experiment, or with the the case where they were splitting the pucks open and and the players were noticing. If the players would have noticed and complained as much if you had done it and not told them. Or were they fixated on it because they knew something was different? I think it would have been hard. I think they would have known right away, right? I mean, just the way the ball feels in the hand. And that's a little bit different with baseball. You don't – like the changes there aren't obvious until you have some data that shows you that things are different. Sarah and I are flying to Costa Rica after this pod, and we're going to sort that <laughs> to out. Check out we're going to start climbing the fence. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there These seams seem low. We're still expecting a report from the scientists who have been looking at the ball all season. Hey, so, Alan Nathan. Mm-hmm, so we'll know more about the regular season ball. I don't know if we'll ever know more about the postseason ball for real. But This is a whole other can of worms that it, if it's taken – this many years to have a report come out on like the mid-season 2016 balls or whenever it was that they rolled out uh, at the All-Star break, then like when are we ever going to know about these postseason balls? I hope someone is like taking them and gathering them up because I could see them being lost, quote-unquote, also. Right. You know, it's like, oh, we don't know what happened to yep. those suspiciously Whoops. non-aerodynamic 2019 MLB playoff balls. All right. Mistakes well, were made. <laughs> let's leave that there. On Thursday, the Washington Mystics claimed their franchise's first WNBA title with a Game 5 win over the Connecticut Sun. To look back on this season of the WNBA and look ahead to what we can expect during the next round of contract negotiations, we're joined by Lindsay D'Arcangelo of The Athletic. Thanks for being here, Lindsay. Thanks for having me back, guys. Well, first, we'd love to get your take on this championship series. Was it was it what you expected, or did anyone or anything surprise you in the final five games? It went exactly how I expected it. We did uh, our own predictions for the series over at The Athletic, and I picked the Mystics to go 3-2 in the series. I thought it would be a, a high-scoring affair um, every game, uh, back and forth. It kind of panned out how, how I anticipated. Were you surprised by any of the individual performances? What surprised me was that uh, people were talking about Courtney Williams as if she had just come out of nowhere, which what you saw in the in the finals is how Courtney Williams has been playing all, all season long. So I'm I'm glad that she she finally got to shine and, and you know got in the spotlight a little bit. I feel like I heard a lot about Emma Mieseman also in this that this was sort of like her uh her her coming out party on like a you know big media stage. But uh, was that just more because of Deladon's injury and sort of you know her having to take a bigger role? She was the key to the the mystics winning i know i mean if you saw her play during the season she's she's capable of this she's she's got for a tall big girl she's she's just capable of of 
hitting those shots at the three-point line, mid-range jumper. And she was a major matchup problem for the Connecticut Sun. So I think it was great to see her win the MVP. I'm really glad that they gave it to her. I was I was kind of concerned they would give it to Deladon because, you know, she pushed through her injuries and whatnot. But they wouldn't have won that last game if it weren't for Miesemann. Um, and, you know, she was pretty consistent throughout the entire series. So were there narratives that arose both during the playoffs and just during the season that you think will carry forward into the next season? Oh, my gosh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could start with injuries being a big narrative, short of figuring out how to keep players from having to play overseas and, and year round. I think we'll continue to see these kinds of injuries um, build up and, and hamper the league, especially with star players. That being said, on the plus side, I don't think it impacted viewership. But, uh, yeah, we're going to continue to see see injuries happen. Um, foul, fouls on, on, on bigs like Liz Cambage and, and Britt Griner, the, the disparity of the refs, um, that I think will continue if, if the refs kind of don't find some level of consistency. And more players showcasing their uh, personalities, I think, the WNBA marketed the league and, and the players different this year. I think I think we all saw more uh, insight into into players and, and and promoting them in that way. And I think that's something that definitely has to continue and should continue. As far as on the court, the uh, Sun Mystics could turn into a rivalry, maybe in the same way that we saw the Lynx and the Sparks a few years back, which would be a great thing for the league. And then you have you know can the Mystics repeat because they'll have all their core players. I think all the the players whose contracts are up, like uh, Deladon and Tolliver, they'll want to come back. Uh, they've already said they don't want to leave. So, yeah, we got a lot. We got a lot. Nice. To go. So many storylines. I have a kind of a bigger picture question about the league. And just to kind of zoom out, I felt like there was a lot more media attention on the league this season in the past. Do you think that it was a season of of growth? How do you feel about like where the league is now compared with uh, where it wanted to be sort of looking ahead? I completely agree with you. Uh, as somebody who's been covering this league, there were so many preview articles, you know, all, you know, off-season stuff right around training camp, and then once once the season started, it's just been so consistent. I love it, and I think it's going to continue. I think every season is a season of growth. I, I think it's from the media perspective, we've taken a huge leap this season. But um, you know, we know that viewership for the final, I believe it was down fifty-one percent from the two thousand seventeen. But the difference is, this year's game five was on ESPN two. The game in two thousand seventeen uh, was on ESPN. There's got to be some more prime time attraction there, uh, pregame coverage. There's different things that they can do to pump that up. And I think uh, Kathy Engelbert needs to come up with some creative ways to to effectively market the WNBA during the playoffs and the finals. Yeah, that's like the time it should be easiest to to market the league. Right. You would you would when think. the best. Yeah. When the best matchups are going and yeah. And the best players are still playing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that feels kind of vexing um, is that it uh, there does seem to be sort of conflicting uh, data points pointing in either directions of positive for the league, but also some negative. And I, I think that you probably saw the stat that people were kind of floating out there last uh, week, that Miles Plumley of the Grizzlies makes more per year than the entire WNBA combined. Uh, how, how does the league kind of cut into that? I know that some of that is just a consequence of they only make 20% of league-related revenue, right? And, and they're one of the big talking points in the next CBA uh, I assume is going to be more of that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's sad, right? You know, for that to have been pointed out. The league MVP makes around $115,000. She has a woodworking business on the side and, and makes extra bank on endorsements. So players who don't have side gigs and who want to make big money, that's why they go overseas and play. The stat you're referring to is a WNBA plays $11.7 million in salaries total. And that, that equals Miles Pumley salary. And he's the 119th. That's 119th most paid salary in the NBA. So those players in front of him uh, make more than the entire WNBA. It's it's mind-blowing. Players know they, they're not going to get what LeBron James gets. What they want is a higher share of revenue. The NWHL, five years in, small, not making that much money. Players get 50% of the revenue. They have a 50-50 split. So why can't the WNBA do it? That's a definite, that's the main thing I think they're going to be looking at for the CBA, upcoming CBA uh, discussions. The current CBA ends on October 31st. The players have also been really vocal about better overall conditions, better travel accommodations. Do you think that there is room for that negotiation here. What do you think the the outcome will be of these negotiations? I hope that the outcome is is positive for both the league and the players. I think we've entered into a new era where the players who are now doing the negotiations are younger and and they demand more. And I've talked to older players in the league who have said, you know, maybe they didn't ask for enough. Um, the current CBA wasn't supposed to end until 2021, but the players, uh, as you know, exercise their opt-out option, and I don't blame them. Yeah, I mean, the the travel thing struck me as interesting, too. You know, games have been canceled because players didn't feel like they had enough time to prepare for a game because of bad travel. You know, Games they, forfeited. Right, right, right. Because they've had to travel commercially instead of... And now that was something the league... Um, did during the finals where they actually, you know, chartered planes to fly teams. And so, and that helped, obviously that seems like a no brainer, (laughs) but I don't know with, with um, how these go. (laughs) I mean, at least they did concede that now. So it seems like it should be on the table. Yeah. I I think everything's on the table at this point and, and doing that, what they did with, with chartering the planes, it was a good um, show of faith, right. Uh, Leading up to these, discussions i think the players have to feel good that you know there was that decision was made um so i mean who knows what's going to come out of it i just i really hope that that the end that the nba because they do have a say in this you need to put money towards it in order to get money out i mean that's business 101 i hope they just they're willing to invest and it does seem like uh this year going back to what we talked about uh and you mentioned the the media attention feeling much more it feels like the wnba has has kind of captured that that uh time period after the nba finals ends where people are really hungry to see basketball in the in the summer and kind of early fall uh and so maybe there's some some momentum that they can kind of pick up there as they sort of solidify you know that's the time where if you want to watch basketball, watch the WNBA. Yeah, and I don't think they'll ever uh, rearrange the schedule of games, but the momentum and what I've seen coming off of the NCAA tournament and and start, you know, just the build up from that and going right into the WNBA is when the attention has been the highest. And then, you know, it sort of peters out as we get in, into the fall because of football starting up and, and baseball playoffs getting underway. Um, so I don't, the, 
I don't know what they can do as far as scheduling is concerned um, and, and, and whatnot, but, you know, it seems to be the prime time that people are, are paying attention is up until about September. Very interested to see in what Engelbert does um, coming off her, her first full season as the, as the commissioner and, and where she kind of goes with things. Uh, I want to see how creative she can get. Well, it was uh, such a great season um, and we have really enjoyed talking to you about it this whole season. Can't wait for next year. Yeah. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you, you taking the time and, and putting some energy towards the WNBA. I appreciate it as somebody who, who loves, who loves the game and loves the league. Absolutely. And I love I'm uh, I'm learning so much more about the Bills by following you on Twitter. So that's really fun, too. I really feel myself rooting for the Bills yeah. now. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> hey, if I could turn people into Bills and WNBA fans, then I've done my job. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And I'm sure we'll talk to you soon again. All right. Take care. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. We're joined this week by our producer, Grace Lynch. Grace, take it away. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back on this side of the mic. (laughs) This week, we wrapped up the 2019 Gymnastics World Championships. I'm a lifelong gymnastics fan. I was a gymnast myself. I get very emotional every time I watch it. I follow our women's team diligently. So Worlds is a really big deal. And this year was no exception. Not only did Team USA win the team gold by a final score of 172.330, which was 5.801 points higher than the silver medal winners, Russia, which is an outrageous difference to win by in gymnastics for context if you were to go another 5.801 points lower you'd be in seventh place like that is how much of a gap there is between the usa and any other team on the international stage so that was just such a joy to see our women's team just like truly clean up and that was really led by simone biles who solidified her legacy by becoming the most decorated gymnast of all time, male or female. She has now won the most world medals at 25, the most world golds at 19, and the most world all-around titles with five, which is such global dominance. There's truly no comparison. It's so satisfying to watch someone compete against themselves so vigorously and with so much joy for the sport. She ended up first in the all-around, winning her fifth title, a full two points higher than second place. For context, the difference between silver and bronze was five-tenths of a point. (laughs) Uh, She won gold in vault with a final score that was a little over five-tenths above second place, whereas the difference between second and third was 67 thousandths of a point. She won gold in beam. Her final score was a little over six-tenths above silver, and the difference between silver and bronze was a little over a tenth of a point. So again, she's just putting these huge distances between her and her competitors On floor, she had the biggest difference in a single event, which was a full point final score ahead of second place, whereas 67 one thousandths of a point separated second and third. So again, these just huge monumental achievements, both for the sport, but also just like as a single competitor is quite wild. She landed two new skills for the first time in international competition, which means they are now officially skills that are going to be named after her. She already had two skills named after her, which we've talked about briefly on the show before. She has a Biles on vault and a Biles on floor. She will now have 
the Biles Two <laughs> on floor. Um, I think it's kind should... of an uncreative name. <laughs> yeah. Why don't Why don't they call it the Simone or like the Biles Two Tokyo Drift or <laughs> Two Biles electric, Two Furious Electric Boogaloo? <laughs> but that is the phenomenal triple double. And the other new Biles that's being entered into the record is on Beam, which is a double double dismount. There was some controversy over this edition because it was rated on as an H level skill. And now as a reminder, gymnastics levels their skills on both a numeric and a letter basis. So an A skill is worth a tenth of a point all the way up to a J skill, which is the triple double, which she lands on floor, which is a full point unto itself. But this new dismount was rated at the same level that a double double is on floor, which is obviously insane because it's much harder to flip twice off of the end of a balance beam than it is to flip on floor where you have <laughs> it a all seems like a really bad idea i mean but off the beam way worse right and so simone who's always has a really beautifully like candid and kind demeanor publicly actually tweeted like ha 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 ha, ha bullshit <laughs> when this was ruled and the USA Gymnastics has spoken out in defense of Simone being like, that's a ridiculous ruling. This is a much harder skill. She should be given more credit for this. And the International Gymnastics Federation essentially said, we think this is too dangerous and we don't want to encourage people to attempt it by weighting it higher because it is a skill that puts you at a at a unique possibility of falling on your neck. I will say that most gymnastic skills put you at a unique position to fall on your neck. So... I mean, vault is literally hurtling yourself off of a thing and into the air. Right. You run full speed at yeah. a stationary object and hope for the best. <laughs> she did land the double-double in qualifiers. I mean, she stuck the landing. It's absolutely stunning to watch. She didn't compete it in the inter, uh, in the individual because it's not worth as much and it's not kind of really worth the risk anymore, even for her to tack it onto her score because she's adding like an extra tenth from what her normal dismount is. So their their concern was that, if I'm reading this correctly, their concern was that uh, a competitor from like a fringe country or someone who's not supposed to be, you know, like a, a podium contender is going to try something crazy difficult and very dangerous. And they wanted to sort of temper that trend of people just trying ridiculously life-threatening maneuvers mm -hmm. and we spoke about well, last time we were talking about when simone landed these things in national competition for the first time we were we spoke about the like the death vault they do not want people to attempt it oh you mean the prado nova <laughs> yes <laughs> thank you jeff you're welcome how are you coming on the foster by the way wasn't that just you napping yeah yeah i just lie down in the center of the floor with a blanket for 25 minutes i set an alarm on my phone <laughs> <laughs> it's controversial. <laughs> we will notice, though, that the only event that Simone is not on the podium for is bars. For Simone, this is definitely her weakest event. And that means that she was only a tenth of a point away from getting to the bronze. And she did medal in it at the last Worlds in 2018. She took the silver, but was still five tenths of a point behind gold. And she's still five tenths of a point behind gold this year as well. It's not her strength in the sense that she's still well within the top 10 people in the world at this event. <laughs> However, she is not astronomically better than everyone in this event. And therefore, that is that's the odd thing. That's what's worth noticing. So when I was looking at that, I was thinking about how, in general, U.S. women tend to be weaker on bars. It is by far, of the four apparatus, our weakest event. 
in the Olympics, we typically have like essentially a ringer come in to do bars for us because we'll have like one person who's a specialist on bars and then they don't necessarily contribute to the rest of the team. Madison Koshin was that for the 2016 Olympics. While it's obvious to me that Simone Biles could truly do anything she could ever fathom, why is it then that she is, is she not dominating on bars? She has the capacity to and she is definitely improving over the years, but it's still clearly not clicking. So I looked over the last 20 years of U.S. bars champions and tried to see if it was maybe a factor of height because Simone is four foot eight, which is usually an asset in gymnastics to be that tight and that compact. But bars is a little different, even though you can adjust the distance between the bars. So it can't ultimately account for too much. But I did find that on the whole, our women who tend to be dominant on bars are over five feet tall. Nastia Lukens, five three. Madison Koshin's 5'2", Ashton Locklear's 5'4", Kayla Ross is 5'7". 5'7"? Yeah. Kayla Ross is amazing. At the Olympics at UCLA now, she's a real phenom. I remember Nastia Lukin thinking she was like so tall. Yeah. Because she was so much taller than Sean Johnson. Right. But she's 5'3". She's 5'3". I met her once. She's very tiny. Yeah. She's not. She's just she's an inch taller than I am. So that makes her a giant. In in the (laughs) gymnastics world, yes. And even our international competitors who have beat us at the Olympics in the past couple of years, Elia Mustafana is 5'3". Hey, Kashin is 5 feet. She's still 4 inches taller than Simone Biles. So I do think that that probably plays a factor in how Simone competes on bars. But I think more so than anything else, it's the emphasis that USA Gymnastics just doesn't place on bars. Our style of gymnastics as a nation has really boiled down to these like high power, extreme, difficult skill after skill after skill so that we can rack up these really hard start values. I mean, that's an obvious thing to do on floor for vault as well. That's all about power. Even though on beam, the USA has managed to kind of transform that into like a mini floor routine. This last Olympics, uh, Sunny Weaver, Sunny Weaver, she's from the Netherlands, won gold on beam doing virtually very little tumbling. It was all spins. And I mean, she was just twirling around it and was able to rack up a really high start value by doing things that most gymnasts never think to attempt because spins are really hard on beam. And so there are different ways to approach these apparatuses that aren't as much about like power and just huge stunts. Bars, you pretty much have to play by different rules. Mm -hmm. It's a different muscle group. It's different training. It's a different style. And it's just not a style that the USA has seemed interested in executing. When I, when I was thinking about that and reading more about how we approach bars, it made me a little nervous about the 2020 Olympics because the 2020 Olympics are going to be different than any other Olympics that we've had thus far because, you know, we went from having the magnificent seven. Then we went down to having, you know, five women on our team. And now it's going to be four. And the reason for pushing for four for Tokyo was the idea that they wanted to have more well-rounded gymnasts. So I was assuming that that meant that we would look to bringing someone like Leanne Wong, who I think is so stunning in how she performs on bars. And yet Leanne wasn't on this world's team, nor was someone like Morgan Hurd, who's a bit more of like a well-rounded gymnast who's had a bit of an off year, but, you know, was the 2017 world champion. And, and instead we had... Simone, obviously, Sunisa Lee, Kara Eaker, and then Jade Carey, Grace McCollum, and Michaela Skinner. And Jade, Grace, and Michaela are all kind of the same. They're like big powerhouses. They're great on floor. They're great on vault. And they have similar weaknesses on 
an apparatus like bars. And so to me, what that's telling me is that when we're looking at 2020, we're not trying to balance the team. I actually think that what the USA is saying is like, we're just going to go out there and dominate the other three events and get so far ahead in these points that the fact that we have good enough performances on bars to, you know, stay, stay close, but we're never going to try to win this apparatus. And that actually makes me rather sad because it's one of my favorites. I think the routines are stunning to watch. And it just feels like we've kind of decided to double down as opposed to expand our reach. Do you think that, though, from like the maximizing, you know, the probability of winning gold, that it makes sense to do this? It, I do think it does. Technically, you are giving yourself a better chance of succeeding, but I don't know if that's great for the sport. Well, so uh, my follow up was going to be, does the Olympic Committee or whomever need to kind of react to this and make it so that you can't just punt completely on one aspect of the sport and still win? Yeah, I I think what will likely happen is that our primary rivals, Russia, China, will just triple, double, quadruple down on bars. Because that's where they know that they can make up the most points against us. So in some ways, maybe it will progress that apparatus because that will be like the primary weakness of the United States to like really push for. And I will say also that in the 2024 Olympics in Paris, we're going to go back to having five women on the team. Oh, it's It's changing. just for Tokyo. That's so where it's going to be for. Well, that and that's interesting, too, because by then it probably won't. Simone won't be on the team. Yeah, she said this like, is her right. last Olympics. Yeah. yeah. So there's a whole void of <laughs> that we're staring into really in such a, a void. post-Simone world. <laughs> Why are they changing it? Why did they already decide to change it for Paris before they've seen what happens in Tokyo? They, they voted to change it back from four to five relatively recently because they they then decided that that, that wasn't fair to, to world caliber athletes who are specialists they now have this like very convoluted way to add extra individual competitors who aren't going to be a part of your team, but like can compete for the event. And then there was a bunch of backlash because that's overly convoluted and seems to defeat the purpose. But the, by the time that they decided to fix it, it was too late for 2020. You know, now now they decide their scoring is overly good. Right. You know, we were just like bashing MLB for like over manipulating things. Mm-hmm. But really, the Olympics are the OG of that. Like That's they, where it started. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they can't help themselves, basically. Grace, how was your bars game? Thank you so much for asking. I would like to say I still have my kip. Was bars your best event? No, floor was my best event. But bars would be a floor close second. Yeah. Like a true American. Like a true American and any real performer. I loved a good floor routine. <laughs> what was your song? Oh, it was um, Swing Swing. Oh, nice. Yeah. Classic. Did you um, do a lot of jazz hands? Oh, for sure. <laughs> I think we should all have some video of you on floor. I think that would be great. I'll work on that. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It helps other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer and contributor this week is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. <laughs>